61 District 6, stage 1 shooting. Skimmer Wayne, near Lakeland, Charles, 478 Tango. 378-1654. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Ceballero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's the holiday season. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate. Hope you're having a good one. It's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Ceballero, and with me always is my very own Santa, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? Ho, ho, ho. I'm well, man. How are you? Good, man. Just hanging out, getting uh, things ready and uh, presents and getting them out to people. And I guess the Postal Service is having some challenges. But uh, don't worry. I didn't get you anything, so it won't be coming. Oh, well, gee. Thank you, Chris. I know what I know. What I'm going to tell Santa to bring you. You need a lump of coal in your stocking. Oh, that fat bastard doesn't come to my house. I hadn't come in a lot of years. But so anyway, yeah, you know. But I think that uh, uh, just being my friend should be Christmas present enough. I mean, there are people out there that don't get that honor. And uh, no, I, I should, I should, I, I should think, be getting Christmas gifts because I am your friend. Oh, is that the way that works? You well, know, that just shows that that's that's testament to how good I've been all I year. see I see I see I don't know that I can agree with that but uh, um, well happy holidays and we've got uh, our show yeah. today and we've got one more show next week we want to encourage everyone to attend we're going to be joined by Greg Fries, who's the editor-in-chief of EMS one he's going to talk to us about the year past he's going to talk to us about uh, what 2016 looks like for EMS one I think that's really going to be exciting for us yeah. to uh, kind of have an insight to as well as uh, we're going to talk about the top five stories of the year, and uh, then we're going to kind of be off until the uh, 5th of January where we'll start recording again, and uh, it'll be a nice little break for us. Yeah, be a nice nice little uh, chance to uh, catch our breath and uh, relax and chillax throughout the holidays. I'm looking forward to it. Well, Kelly, I think one of the things we haven't done in a while is we got a couple of uh, listener emails. And, you know, we love to talk to, you know, we love to hear from the listeners. We love to kind of answer their questions. So we're going to talk about two today. But I think we'd be hard-pressed if we didn't mention one news story. And I'm going to kick that to you. Yeah, uh, we we need to send out our, our thoughts and prayers to the families of uh, the Air Methods uh uh, helicopter crew that crashed in the Superstition Mountains uh, west of uh, Phoenix uh, last night. Uh, apparently, an Air Methods chopper chopper went down uh, in very rugged terrain, uh, and uh, the company's quoted as saying that there were uh, two injuries or two fa- uh, injuries, and uh, one crew member is safe. Uh, no word as to their condition. Um, but this happened uh, actually 55 miles east of Phoenix. They were not patient uh, loaded at the time. Uh, and uh, apparently the uh, chopper went down around 8 p.m. into the mountains and no further info is, is available. But that's yet another uh, uh, pair of our, uh, our brethren uh, in helicopter crews uh, who have who've perished in the line of duty. And uh, we ask you all to, to keep, your, your thoughts and keep them in your thoughts and prayers, please. Yeah, and with that uh, being the holiday season, we, we don't like to lose our, uh, you know, our brethren. And uh, the holiday season does make it kind of tough for the family. And our hearts do go out to those people in, uh, at Air Methods in Arizona. And, uh, you know, anytime you launch that helicopter, man, you've, or you've got to be assured that this mode of transportation is really needed. And, and, for, and I'm going to call it that. 
And, you know, when we think about what an ambulance can do compared to what a helicopter can do and, and weighing, mm-hmm. the, weighing the launch time and weighing the flight time and weighing the ground time and, and weighing the, you know, the, the flight back to the hospital, you know, we really have to use our critical thinking skills in the field to make the determination, is this really going to save that much time? And sometimes the answer is yes. And sometimes we got to launch that bird. But other times we, we look at how we're utilizing that service and uh, we could do a better job of bringing them to the scene. And this, yeah. is, this is very serious. And at any time those blades start to turn, the risk of that crew dying is uh, in our hands. And we've got to be able to be diligent yeah. about that, Kelly. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We don't need to uh, uh, endanger our... our uh, air med crews uh, for our convenience uh, needs to be based on patient need. But enough of that. Let's, uh, let's move on to our first listener question. Uh, we've got a uh, listener uh, out of Texas who uh, had a clinical question. Uh, he says uh, they had a 19-year-old male involved in a motor vehicle collision uh, with major damage to the front end of the vehicle, uh, estimated speed of 40 to 50 miles an hour. And the patient said that he was unrestrained and had a loss of consciousness. Uh, but at EMS arrival, he was awake, alert, and oriented and had ambulated under his own power, self-extricated from the accident, and was ambulatory at scene, and, and uh, uh, sensory and motor were all intact. Uh, and um, his, uh, um, his uh, nexus exam was, was uh, otherwise normal. Uh, and he wanted to know why should we backboard him or why or why not. Um, this seems to be... Uh, something that that's that's still kind of slow to roll out, and and my perspective on it is a little skewed because I have been preaching about unnecessary use of backboards uh, all around the country for for at least ten years now. Uh, that we backboard way too many people for way too dubious reasons, um, and this is yet another one of those. You know, well, and, we don't know we don't know if they backboarded him. He's just asking the question of what we. What oh, we oh yeah, do. he yeah. But yeah, let me he, add one more. Back- let me add one okay. more piece, though, uh, that you're forgetting. Uh, and this listener did uh, uh, send messages to both Kelly and I, and, and we've kind of talked about this separately, and this is the first time we're talking as a team. But his chief complaint was right shoulder pain and also yeah. withdrew when his spine was palpated near the L5 area. Yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead and okay. finish. So I didn't mean to cut you off. L5 finish your thought. Um, you know, and, and I look at these things and go, why, why can't people, you know, catch up with the times uh, and, and look at the science? But changes are slow to happen. And, and in this uh, listener's case, uh, he didn't think that the patient needed a board, which I didn't believe either. And according to current, uh, uh, the National Association of EMS Physicians position paper on the subject, uh, it wasn't necessary. Um, but a firefighter medic on scene uh said that they needed to board him and since uh since our listener was an EMT um he uh he acquiesced to the medic's uh medic's request and and boarded the patient wanted to know what we thought um i would say that first of all spinal cord injury is exceedingly rare uh even in serious trauma uh in serious trauma it's 1 to 2 uh 1 to 2% of your uh, major trauma victims have some type of spinal fracture, and only 0.5 to 1 percent have spinal cord injury uh, or have spinal fracture and are neurologically intact. And that's important to consider because only those patients are the ones who will theoretically benefit 
and I'm emphasizing theoretically, benefit from spinal immobilization. The other 99.5% of the patients, even if they have neurological compromise, are not going to benefit being, from being strapped to a board. Uh, those who are already neurologically compromised, the damage is done, and immobilization at that point uh, proves no benefit. What, what, what makes the biggest difference in the, the growth of a lesion is swelling, not manipulation. Uh, we know that now. Something we didn't know for a couple of generations, but the, the evidence is, is overwhelmingly compelling uh, that the backboard immobilization does not do any good. Um, and uh, a couple of years ago, the National Association of EMS Physicians released a position paper uh, stating that, um, you know, outlining the, the conditions where spinal immobilization uh, should be performed and when it should not be performed. Um, if you have a reliable patient uh, who is ambulatory at the scene of an accident, they can be effectively immobilized in position of comfort on the stretcher with a C-collar only. Uh, that's what the current position paper states. Um, in our system, we've, we've pretty much adopted uh, verbatim uh, those recommendations. And uh, in my system, that guy would have gotten a C-collar. Uh, and been placed on a soft ambulance cot in the most comfortable position for him and carefully transported to the hospital. Uh, and that's, and the only reason he would have got the collar is because he uh, was not totally reliable because there had been a, a loss of consciousness and he was disoriented to place um, and uh, because he complained of spinal pain with palpation. Um, if we have a patient who is ambulatory at the scene of an accident and has no complaint of neck or back pain, uh, regardless of mechanism of injury, um, that's solid evidence that the patient's not spinally injured and we don't immobilize those people. So uh, the, the firefighter medic who, uh, who uh, requested that our, uh, our listener immobilize a patient was, uh, needs to catch up a little bit. Um, uh, we're, we're doing way too many things to people uh, that, that really have no basis in science. Yeah, and and I want to I want to go ahead and push back a little bit and talk about uh, we certainly don't know what the medical director of that fire department um, has for their, for their system as well. And, and you're absolutely right. This may not have been an individual decision. That may have been a, a you know a, a decision that's coming in a protocol. And but again, we mm -hmm. should be able to we should be able to make the determination that uh, this is something that we can bypass. But we don't know the politics in that system. We don't know the politics with that. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, that fire department and, and certainly can't uh, second guess why the patient was put on a board. Now, with that said, though, I, I want to go ahead and think about, you know, the kinematics and the, and, and the mechanism of injury. So let's go ahead and I'll play devil ad devil's advocate here for the people who are on the other side listening, Kelly, who are saying that I would have put him on a backboard. So you've got a 19-year-old male who's involved in a motor vehicle accident. First, we know that the, the younger drivers are very, very irresponsible, and I can't count the number of accidents my kids were in when they were um, just learning how to drive and, and uh, mm -hmm. trying to get the youngster out of them, you know? So we've got major damage to the front end. A patient is not restrained, 40 to 50 miles an hour, don't know what he hit. Patients uh -huh. can, uh, uh, has some loss of consciousness, and he's, uh, when he regains consciousness, he's not within his full faculties. And mm -hmm. uh, PMS uh, is normal. Uh, chief complaint is shoulder pain. He has some withdrawal 
in the lower spine region. So I, I just want to ask you these questions. As a paramedic that arrives on scene, what is your first thought? And give me the Reader's Digest version. What is your first thought <laughs> of, well, I got to cut you off even before you start. Yeah, I know you said um, what is like your Yeah, what is your first thought of uh, suspected injury? You're talking with the suspicion, uh, 40, 40 to 50. Yeah. yeah. My, my index of suspicion is fairly high potential spinal injury, particularly if he was unbelted, you know, uh, you, you've got that up and over pathway where a head could have impacted the, uh, the windshield and, and you, you can have axial loading if it hit just right or hyperextension or hyperflexion. However, the patient happened to have been positioned, but, but this is the big caveat that's going to be driven by my assessment of the patient, not my assessment of the vehicle. I'm not a car insurance adjuster. I don't treat car bumpers. I treat people. And that car bumper may tell me where to look, what possibly to look for, but it ain't going to guarantee what I find. What I find needs to be assimilated by my own hands, eyes, and ears. And my treatment needs to be based on that. Mechanism of injury is a piss poor predictor of actual injury. Um, but there's also, and, but you also have to agree though, that there are going to be injuries that you can see, that you can feel, that you can't talk about because there are just going to be, I mean, you know, so you talk about, you said up and over, you know, it could have been down and under, mm -hmm. but it, you know, you talk about up and over. So now we could be talking about steering wheel to the chest, cardiac contusions, internal bleeding. He's but, got, he's, but, well, hang on. He's got loss yeah. of consciousness, uh, or he's not oriented to place, which now could mean that there's a bleed, which now could mean that he's having, uh, he's going to have uh, uh, some challenges there. So th the point that I want to get to is, and I'm going to give you the floor back here. The point okay. I want to get to is in this case, especially with the withdrawing of the uh, palpation near uh, L5, I can't tell you that I wouldn't have put the guy on the board. Well, I... But but the premise you're working on, I think, is a flawed premise, is that you're, you're going by better safe than sorry. Well, we need to define what is safe. So you're still operating under that old paradigm that, that the spine board is safe. Um, and the evidence uh, is to the contrary. Um, we have, at this point, now I'll, I'll fully grant the point that absence of evidence does not mean evidence of absence. There is a possibility that there is a very small, tiny subset of patients who could potentially benefit from being immobilized on a backboard. However, that only the, the better safe than sorry attitude only, only works is if the proposed treatment is safe. Um, we have no evidence that it works and a mountain of evidence that says it is harmful. Pain, decubitus ulcers, increased intracranial pressure. You mentioned, hey, head, uh, head impacted the steering wheel up and over pathway. Could he have a head injury? Is lying him on his back going to help? Even if he is laid on his back, um, the fact that we say it to people all the time, uh, not hurting now, you will be afterwards. Well, if you're lying on a backboard and you have to reposition yourself to get comfortable, is that really meeting our goal of spinal immobilization? No, it's not. You're actually moving probably more than you would be if you were in a position of comfort. But I think we're, um, I think we're so, using I think we're using semantics here because first of all, when we we've been using this this word wrong for for many many years 
first of all, it's not spinal immobilization. We can never immobilize no, it's, the spine. It's, it's spinal motion restriction. So we're trying to restrict mm -hmm. the movement of the spine. And in this case, you can tell me that there is not a spinal cord injury. No. Well, actually, I kind of can. Oh, really? I kind of oh, can. Oh, wait now, a minute. Hang on. Now, hang the, on a second, Superman. Spine, Superman. Let me the hang lumbar on. spine. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you about my x-ray eyes. Hall. All right. Let me hear this uh, because all, I'm going to hang out with you the, at the fraternities at the uh, first sorority. First of all, the, the accuracy, the predictive accuracy of a nexus examination. Now, I'm not, the, it may not apply to this. Go ahead and define that for the people who don't know. Because he's, all right, because he's. It may not apply to this guy because he is borderline. I say borderline unre unreliable. He was able to participate in an exam and answer all questions. Uh, plus, he had palpable deform or he had tenderness to the L, L spine. By the way, Nexus does not assess L spine; it right. assesses C spine. So, but the Nexus exam is a National Emergency X Radiography Utilization Study. It was designed to limit the number of unnecessary X rays in emergency departments. And since then, it has kind of broadened into pre-hospital use and is what most of us base our spinal clearance protocols off of. And they developed a set of clinical criteria by which they could assess a patient and judge whether a patient needed an x-ray or not. And those criteria, if they are properly applied in a reliable patient, are about 99% accurate at ruling out the need for a spinal x-ray, uh, at ruling out a unstable spine fracture. Okay. Now, if you look at the, the statistics for a cross-table lateral C-spine film, uh, they're only 96 to 97% accurate, and most studies actually show a 60 to 80% uh, level of accuracy at predicting, uh, at identifying spinal injuries. So when you say, well, I don't have a set of x-ray eyes, well, I certainly hope not because your eyes and your hands are more accurate than that spinal x-ray more accurate than that spinal x-ray. If you're, if you're utilizing the nexus criteria properly and using them on a reliable patient, your exam is more accurate than the x-ray. And that's statistically proven over many, many thousands of patients now. Are there, are there, so, I mean, are you using this protocol in your place? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're using it here. Um, uh, generally we're, we're kind of discouraging the use of spine boards. Uh, we still use them, you know, in unreliable patients or if it was a patient who has any degree of neck pain and we had to extricate them from the vehicle, they're going to get boarded. Uh, but if we have an ambulatory patient at the scene prior to arrival, if that guy has a spinal injury, uh, a spinal fracture, uh, it's pretty, uh, you know, it's pretty strong evidence that it is a stable spinal fracture that's not going to benefit from our mobilization. So at most, we'll put a C-collar on if there's... You know, if there's red flag, uh, you know, the spider sense is tingling and, and we think that uh, that there may be something going on there. Uh, and if there's there's no, you know, neg uh, all negative findings, uh, we're not even going to mobilize that guy. No collar, no nothing. Just here, sir, have a seat on this on this stretcher. We'll keep you as comfortable as we can on the way to the hospital. Come on and walk right over here and sit down and you'll be okay. That's right. And we used to, you know, and, and God knows I used to roll my eyes at medics who did that and go, you lazy no count, that's okay. worthless paramedics, and that's actually the way we should have been doing it all along. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know that they were doing it because of uh, no, you know, they them weren't. Being, they yeah, weren't. They weren't doing it, it because was, they were it genius. A, they yeah, were doing it, it was because a, they it were. It was expediency. Yeah. 
Yeah. But, so, uh, well, good. I mean, I think that this is a good discussion. And then unfortunately, Kelly, I think this is one of those discussions that uh, we're going to have to have because, as you mentioned, yeah. the science has been out there for a lot of years. And, and, and my position mm-hmm. here was just to be the devil's advocate, but I agree with you 100% yeah. that, you know, there are tools out there now that we need to be able to utilize that gives us a better understanding. Mm-hmm. We're not going to catch it 100%. But remember, we're operating under our medical director's protocols, and if he gives us the opportunity Mm -hmm. to use our critical thinking skills and make the determination that final motion restriction is uh, our call, we need to be able to utilize those tools and make the best decisions that we can, but know that we're not going to be 100%. Let's go ahead and and switch gears, Kelly, because we do have another another question I want to get to, and this comes out of Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, John Dalvig uh, is a critical care paramedic in the MedStar system in Fort Worth. I had the opportunity to work with John uh, when I was down there, and really great paramedic, funny guy. And uh, But he sent me a, he, uh, a message, and he asked the question about their, you know, he talked about leadership. And, you know, leadership is one of the things that I, I try to uh, spend a lot of time uh, working on now, uh, you know, helping organizations develop leadership programs and, and coaching mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So, but his question was that there aren't a lot of ways that EMS folks can prepare for their leadership positions and that the fire service does a lot better job than we do of preparing their field staff, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. to lead the best resource they have, which is their people. You know, what are we going to do about that education, one? But secondly, how do we take the great employees the dedicated employees, the professional employees, the, the role model employees, and make them leaders, oh, by the way, they just happen to be EMTs. So I think there's this big stigma in our career field that a, a supervisor has to be a medic. And uh, I got to tell you, man, I don't know that that's right. I mean, I think that there are some great yeah. EMTs that I've worked with that I thought would be outstanding supervisors. But because, of, again, of the, of the stigma uh, that says that it has to be a paramedic, uh, they didn't have an opportunity. So I think this question is relevant. I think this mm-hmm. question brings us into, you know, where we are in our career field at this point. And I'd be interested to know your thoughts. You know, I, it, that is a very interesting question. And it, it brings to mind two thoughts. Number one, uh, leadership skills are not something that is conveyed with a gold patch or in, in, in his case, a red patch uh, in Texas. But, uh, you know, leadership skills do not necessarily go with, with paramedic certification. Leadership skills are just that. They are a skill set. And sometimes those skill set, that skill set is obvious and present in a person who, who possesses a white patch, an EMT basic. Uh, so should we be... Uh, um, identifying and, and nurturing and mentoring those those future leaders, even as EMTs, and giving them some position of responsibility? I would say yes. Uh, I've, I've worked in systems where we had EMTs uh, who were supervisors. Uh, the only caveat to that is my second thought is that the old leadership principle that you should not ask a subordinate to do something that you cannot do yourself uh, as well or better. Um, that that's a fundamental tenet of leadership, you know, is that if you're going to have people buy into what you're asking them to do and respect you as a leader, uh, they have to believe deep down in their heart that you have their best interests at heart first, but that you can do 
what you're at, what they're asking you to do, um, just as well as, as anyone else. Uh, and that's not something an EMT can do that a paramedic is capable of. Having said that, I don't think it's that, uh, I don't think it's that big a hurdle. Uh, you, you work in a system, I mean, in the system that I, I started out in, uh, a couple of my, my partners were supervisors, uh, and, and the line was, was very drawn, uh, very definitively is that they didn't question my judgment. They didn't question, they didn't throw their weight around as supervisors when it came to clinical care. If it's something that a paramedic, uh, decision, a paramedic was making about care, they would defer. Uh, but when it came to policies and procedures and how the organization was perceived among the public and how they dealt with all the, the, the brush fires uh, that supervisors have tried to put out uh, and how they treated their people, um, that was a different story. And, and, and I see no reason why an EMT who has those skills couldn't be a supervisor. And I have to agree with you. You know, as you mentioned, you know, leadership is an action. Leadership is not a position. And, you know, yeah. r- regardless of where you are in the food chain of the organization, you're, you, could be, uh, you could be a leader. And that's being a role model. That's being a mentor and sharing your experiences. And, you know, one of the things that I think that we've always done is we've assumed that um, having a higher level of care as a supervisor is going to make the difference. Some of the things that we do is first mm-hmm. responding. Some of the things that we do is, is um, you know, uh, change out narcotics. Some of the things we do is we insist we assist with uh, the, the critical calls, the cardiac arrests, the ejections, uh, and having another ALS provider on scene is, uh, you know, beneficial. But I got to think, mm-hmm. I got to say that I think that that's old, the old school way of thinking. You certainly can give an EMT, you know, uh, five morphine and five fentanyl and five Dilaudids and, and have them roam around the city that they can transfer out, you know, the narcotics for a uh, paramedic. I certainly think mm-hmm. that you can have an experienced paramedic on scene, uh, experienced EMT on scene to help you with those critical calls. And, and really, we go back to the discussion about what does a, a, an ALS provider do uh, that a BLS provider can't do in the back of the ambulance. Sure, we can do a little bit more in our treatment plan. We could do a little bit more in our treatment protocol. But we certainly are not giving the patient a, a lesser quality of care if a trained EMT is on scene getting them to the hospital compared to an ALS mm-hmm. provider. Now, with that said, I think that we need to be able to push this paradigm aside or this habit aside that says that they have to be an ALS provider. Now in the days of community paramedicine, and I know Kelly, I always go back to that, but I I think systems now have to start to think about the future with community paramedics running around. Now you have an ALS provider who's a community paramedic that can go to these scenes as well that can go and and help transfer uh, narcotics, that can go and and help on the critical scenes. There are some systems in the United States that are sending critical care paramedics, uh, community paramedics to uh, cardiac arrest to start the hypothermia protocol. So I think now when we start to think about the old days of EMS and where the new days are coming, I certainly think that there's opportunity now to take those those qualified EMTs, those role model EMTs, those mentor EMTs, and give them the tools that they need. Now, here's the big secret. Regardless of the color of your patch, ALS or BLS, give them the mm-hmm. training they need to be successful to be a successful yep. leader. As employers, we spend a lot of money hiring leaders to ensure 
that we get the very best out of our people so they develop, they deliver the best service possible. Mm -hmm. And we're not trained to do that. And because no. of that, not only do our, does our workforce fail, not only does the care that our, 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 um, our community gets, and I think that that's where the failure in EMS is. You know, that's, that's something I think John Becknell wrote on that, uh, has written on it uh, on a number of occasions uh, about how we fail our, our future leaders by, by not giving them t the tools to succeed. Clinical competence and, and leadership potential and, and knowing your agency's protocols and policies and procedures backwards and forwards is not enough. You have to actually have training, uh, you know, to... to succeed in the role of a supervisor. Now, with the training, um, you should be able to uh, to do the job, uh, basic or paramedic. Um, I think that EMS as a, as a career field is no different than any other career field in that we're subject, we're, we're uh, at the mercy of the Peter Principle. You know, and the Peter Principle holds that, that uh, in any organizational hierarchy, uh, you rise to your own level of incompetence. Meaning that you know you move up the organizational ladder uh, by by excelling at your job until you reach a a, uh, a tier on the ladder that you can't excel at, um, and you're stuck there. So you rise to your own level of incompetence, um, and you don't move up beyond that. But rarely do you actually move back down to a lower tier where you were actually competent. So what winds up happening is, is the upper tiers of management and, and supervisory levels at any agency, if they've been in, established for a while, uh, are filled with incompetent people. Um, and that's not just in the EMS, that's, that's in, in management period. Um, how do we fix that? Well, you know, I, I think you start nurturing and teaching leaders uh, early on in, in giving them specific training and education in, in leadership and supervisory capacity. I'll give you an example. We, we actually kind of do it at, at Acadian. It's not, I don't know of any EMT supervisors, uh, but we do have EMT field training officers uh, or EMT preceptors uh, because the, the job of precepting a, a new hire and supervising a new hire and, and familiarizing them with the company is, is a little different uh, between paramedics and, and EMTs. So we actually have EMTs who are responsible for uh, mentoring and nurturing our new hire EMTs. And that at least gives them some leg up uh, for when they want to go on to, uh, to paramedic school and, and become a, uh, perhaps become a, a field supervisor one day. Um, but if you look at, at the role of our, our field supervisors in our system, 99.9% .9 of the time, they're not out there doing clinical care that requires a paramedic patch to do. Um, they're, you know, they may, they'll sprint calls and they'll help us out on critical scenes or anything, but they're not out there wielding a laryngoscope or an IV catheter or making decisions about clinical care. Uh, they're serving as a resource uh, and, and uh, you know, a, uh, an asset to the field crews uh, and, and putting out the little, you know, brush fires that, that supervisors have to put out sometimes. But little of it has anything to do with being a paramedic. So I would think that an EMT could, could handle that role as well uh, if an organization allowed them to do it. Um, in my first, in my first uh, EMS job, our incident commanders in our, in our MCI protocol, our incident commanders were the EMT basics uh, on the first end truck. 
And the reasoning behind that was, is that we didn't need someone. If you rolled up on a scene and you had more patients you could deal with, you had a multi-casualty scene or an MCI, um, the paramedic was needed to do patient care. What we needed from the EMT was organizational skills and the ability to multitask. And, and our EMTs were good ones and they had that. So we put them in the role of incident commander because we didn't need them rendering care. We needed them to marshal resources and do all the things that an incident commander does. Uh, and that was the job of our EMT basics, uh, not the paramedics. Um, I see no reason why that approach wouldn't work in any other agency, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I have to agree. And I, I think that this is a resource that we've neglected, neglected for a lot of years. And I think we see eye to eye on this. And uh, I think we should give these guys the opportunity. But th there yep. has to be the ability to ensure that they're getting the training that they need to be successful. Mm -hmm. And maybe when we come back after the break, Kelly, in January, uh, we do a show on uh, how to develop a good leadership program for our career field uh, for your organization, and uh, we'll kind of talk about some of those best practices. But I got to tell mm -hmm. you, man, I think we're putting the uh, wraps on another show, and uh, we've got one more yep. show left for the end of this year. And uh, come join us next time when we are uh, we're joined by Greg Freeze, editor-in-chief of EMS1, and Kelly and I count down the top stories of uh, 2015. But Kelly... It's time for you to uh, take the gauntlet and uh, get us up on out of here. Guys, once again, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. Uh, we'd love to hear your concerns, comments, questions, suggestions. Uh, we love these uh, listener questions and addressing them on there. So send them to us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Ceballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.